Welcome to the Story Paths podcast, where we explore links between story and culture. I'm Theodore Lowry, your host. I'm excited to announce that, as of March 2023, I've released my first on-demand creativity course. It's on Skillshare, nestled within a library of great creative courses, and if you're not already on there, I've got a link in the show notes where you can get a free month. My course is called Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas. In it, I guide you through finding ideas within your memories, working with them as symbols, and learning to deftly combine and recombine them into meaningful stories. There's a trailer for the course there in the show notes, along with the free link. Hope to see you in there. And so, we begin. Pattern of empire Moving through history Printed on disparate times One way we've organized We've also lived simpler ways Without so much control Tribes and villages Peaceful Welcome to the Story Paths podcast, and I'm very pleased to say I'm here with my friend Kester Reed, uh, who is one of the founders and managers, runners of the Fianna Wilderness School on Vancouver Island. Uh, so I'll ask him in a minute, I'll ask you, Kest, in a minute <laughs> to talk about this. And just a little background, how we met is we met in the Ferry Creek protests. I remember we were on a road clearing out some sticks and rocks and things so that the uh, fire inspectors could come in and make sure that the camps were not uh, fire hazards. And so we were clearing, you know, just enough space so that they could get through and trying not to make it too easy for police to get through. (laughs) This is back in the summer. And uh, yeah, we got to talking uh, about education and story and culture and history and all these good things. And uh, Kess, you're telling me a bit about this school that you're you're running, that you founded, mm-hmm. along with your partner, I think. And it seems like story is very woven in with what you do there. Uh, yeah, so I'd really like to just open it up to you if you want to describe the school, what you do sure. there. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, I run the school with... Um, Actually, not my like romantic partner, but um, yeah, my business partner Stephanie. Mm. Um, so she she's been a, a mentor of mine over the years of doing this work, um, and also a very dear friend. So she lives on Gabriola, um, Gabriola Island, and I live up in the Comox Valley. So we run programs between the Comox Valley and Gabriola. And uh, Fianna Wilderness School um, came about basically because both of us were moving to this area at the same time, and and we were both ready to start our own thing. We both worked in in uh, nature connection 
schooling, uh, Nature Connection Mentorship, for quite a few years, and we had previously worked together on the Lower Mainland. Uh, and for both of us, we have a strong uh, grounding in um, in mythology um, mm. and kind of my background previously was working in the tropics kind of in conservation like environmental conservation but also cultural work especially in the amazon for a few years and i was uh, very privileged to receive mentorship in uh yeah in 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 a tradition um there the iueu tradition um from the western amazon in kind of present day ecuador um in the catchment of the pastasa river and to spend some time in some remote communities there. And really, you know, I had a, uh, I, I guess you could call it a spiritual quest for a few years of my life, just being in the Amazon a lot. And um, really, um, yeah, sort of following this longing for a deeper sense of culture and place. Um, mm. And really what I learned uh, is that what what sort of weaves all of that together, culture and place is stories and mythology origin stories and um you know they're like this map of relationships um within uh within an indigenous culture that connect everything together um mm. so that was kind of my um yeah i guess my lineage of learning and then stephanie's been connected to a mayan lineage uh sort of human lineage um for about 10 years she's been studying with this teacher down in new mexico and so equally for her you know her 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 training has very much been been uh, in um, in in the ways of of, of culture and, and story, you know, um, as as a means to living in balance with with our land and with our ancestors and with our future generations. So when we came together to form this school, you know, wanting to offer land based programming to kids and adults, um, for both of us, it was really important that that. Um, it's it's grounded in in a sense that mythology stories um, weave us all together, and if we can kind of actively participate in that weaving, uh, engaging with the stories, feeding stories, then um, you know we'll be manifesting um, sort of like uh, yeah, we'll be manifesting the good stories, I guess, the big stories. You know, there's an understanding that like. If we're not engaged, there's all these other stories of mythology from the from the you know the darker side or the shadow side of things that happened when different energies live through people um, because they're not necessarily paying attention or or you know a culture isn't necessarily in balance uh, with its origins and with its future generations and with place. Um, so so mm. all of these stories really are a touchstone for us. Well, more than a touchstone, they're they're really the groundwork. Um, and the groundwater, even of of um, what feeds us, we believe as a culture, um, as a society, personally as an individual, you know. Um, so we we teach uh, kids. Uh, our adult programs have been on hold for the last couple of years because of COVID. Um, but mm -hmm. Stephanie and I are really excited to offer more programs to adults. Uh, but mainly now, what we're doing is is offering programs to kids, mainly homeschool families, and um, we operate within, a, within a, a mentorship model that was developed at the Wilderness Awareness School over in Washington, um, which, is, which is a model for working, uh, basically an education model um, that's kind of structured around a medicine wheel. Also, that lineage goes back to 
an indigenous teacher by the name of Stalking Wolf, an Apache man um, who mentored a guy called Tom Brown, who mentored a guy called John Young, who set up the Wilderness Awareness School hmm. as a way to formalize these teachings of bringing relationship-based, connection-based education to young people, you know, what you might call a more indigenous style of learning and teaching uh, that follows kind of natural patterns of development. Um, so, you know, we follow a medicine wheel throughout the year. We're teaching seasonal curriculum and we're teaching in a way that really does not look like teaching. It's actually connecting with kids um, and providing core cultural routines, what we call our core routines that facilitate their connection to each other and to the land. Um, so those core routines range from like storytelling is a big one, you know, reviving a kind of oral tradition. Mm. Singing is another one, opening up our senses and really like starting to notice just how much information is coming to our senses at any moment. Play is a huge one, loads of games, you know, navigating, just sort of getting kids into a sense of being aware of where they are in their land and where we've come from. And if they could draw a little map of where we've come from and just spatial awareness in that way. Um, yeah, tracking is another one, you know, one of these core routines of like, you see a mark on a tree, it doesn't even have to be a track on the ground, but everything leaves a story in nature, you know, a mark on a tree, how did that bark get scraped off? Was it a tree that fell down? Does that tell us something about the wind lately? You know, like just these modes of, uh, noticing, mm -hmm. um, that's kind of what we're trying to support, uh, in these kids, uh, and what we refer to as the core routines, so we're basically out on the land most days with kids of between the ages of four and, and 16. And um, yeah, we are following a seasonal curriculum, but mainly we're trying to connect with them and we're using our skills and our kind of our, uh, our particular disposition as naturalists and our curiosity to kind of try to support them on a path of learning with this understanding that each person carries their own gifts each person comes here for a reason and, and we have this beautiful journey through life to really uncover those gifts and offer them to the world and our best teacher for that is life itself um and really the land you know will provide us with the challenges and the questions and the, the mysteries at the right stage of our development to to really uncover those gifts and and yeah meet, meet the challenges that we need individually and it's uh it's a struggle today because of course our lifestyle has has drifted so far from a day-to-day -day connection with the land and dependence on the land um mm. and of course we're still entirely dependent on the global landscape but but um yeah too often we're we're like disconnected um, from those actual processes by which the land gives us life so so what we're doing out there each day is kind of trying to trying to hold a culture of, of connection to land and origins and story um, and, and really live in that with the kids as a way of, of supporting an a natural unfolding of their process of learning and growth. Um, yeah, I feel like that sort of sums it up. Yeah, I have a, I have a pretty good idea. I have yeah. a pretty good idea. So it's a, uh, just, you know, before maybe diving deeper into stories and mythology, um, it's, is it in terms of the academic curriculum, is it a, is it supplementary to the, to the regular schools? Yeah. So we, we're basically completely independent of, of, of the, 
of the BC curriculum, we are an independent school, um, and and we don't we don't conform to to any external agenda. So the families that we work with, um, they're homeschool families for the most part. We do run some monthly programs, one day a month, which works well for families who have their kids in school. Hmm. But yeah, no, we're not trying to fulfill any particular curriculum goals. So we're mm-hmm. really just doing what makes sense seasonally. And also it's, you know, it's quite child, it's passion led. So if the kids are, you know, if we have kids that are just stoked on carving, then we're going to carve a lot with them. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. we're going to, we're going to like support that and, and see where it goes. Um, but in terms of our curriculum, you know, this time of year where we've got to focus on mushrooms, we've got to focus on mm-hmm. shelter building and tracking because this is, such a time of abundance and harvest on the land um, and obviously getting Mm. prepared for winter um but yeah those more kind of core curriculum of 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 traditional schooling is is not part of what we teach although it does come in now and again you know just because whether it's mathematics and working out how many sticks we need for this or that or you know a, a lot of critical inquiry comes in definitely like i feel like we really teach kids to think in a meaningful mm. way where they have context for for what their inquiry uh, really means um but yeah we don't have to adhere to any external curriculum mm, okay so the the kids as far as the requirements of the regular curriculum they'll usually meet that in homeschooling Exactly. or within school and do you go out every every day of the week or five days a week yeah so we have a few different programs so we have some programs on farms as well uh, where we're doing our nature connection stuff um but also integrating some farming knowledge so we'll have a garden mm. through the through the spring and summer with these kids and um you know we work with animals to um do some milking of cows and make some cheese and you know, we have kitchens on these farms, so a big apple harvest in the fall, and we can some applesauce, and you know, some of the some of the kind of homesteading um, homesteading culture is what we want to we want to um, revive also or pass on to these kids. Um, so we have uh, yeah farm program a couple of days a week. Uh, we have a couple of days a week of a forest program in different locations. Um, and then I'm doing a, an herbalist program as well at a botanical gardens local to here. Um, and we have a program once every two weeks over in Powell River, which is just over the water from Comox, like towards mm-hmm. the mainland. So, yeah, between all of our programs, we have we have something going on every day of the week, and we have, mm. uh, I think, five staff in the school right now. And, uh, yeah, we're in this interesting period of, of, of growth where we just, you know, it's kind of our second full year um, because our first year was interrupted uh, by COVID. Um, we had to shut down. Um, so yeah, really like after our, really only our first full year, we had like a lot of great feedback and we offered more programs. And so we're in this, yeah, we're in this period of growing and really just trying to make sure we grow at a sustainable pace and making sure we're really passing on the quality and the values of, of the programming that we really want. So it's, yeah, it's a question of mentoring staff, right. As well as, as, as mentoring these kids and, and really holding a strong container. I, I really view it as cultural work. Um, and I know Stephanie mm-hmm. does too, you know, we're setting up a kind of cultural container. Um, and our, our hope is that, you know, every day for me or any of our staff out on the land with the kids is also a day of being in our own curiosity, being in our own like mm-hmm. connection with the land, 
being in our own experience of growth and, and, and learning. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's an exciting, it's an exciting time of working out kind of just, just how to do that to grow in a good way and, and maintain a kind of a core of stability and, and integrity of what we do. It sounds beautiful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like so much of what I wish I'd gotten more of in my mm-hmm. childhood and, when I look back at the education, that you know, there's some good things, mm-hmm. but there wasn't a lot of what you're talking about <laughs> in my own education. I mean, with my family, we went camping, and I did learn a little here and there, you know. Mm-hmm. And it also sounds like uh, what I'm hearing is that there's wild crafting in there. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's going to the forest, mm-hmm. and then there's also the homesteading. Mm-hmm. So you're kind of, which are two ways of living off the land that. I think have been considered often quite uh, apart from each other. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're either homesteading or yeah. you're doing like hunting and gathering. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it seems like you're saying, well, actually that they're not really have to be, there doesn't need to be a big divide between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, you're right that, that I've noticed that too, you know, especially being in the kind of uh, wilderness skills movement or what used to be called primitive skills movement. Um, and the nature connection movement, which again is kind of connected to the wilderness awareness school and that whole eight shields tradition of mentorship, um, coming from stalking wolf, but yeah, there can be this, this, um, yeah, I guess this notion in those circles of like, oh, to be living in integrity with the land, we have to be living like our oldest ancestors who were hunter gatherers and, and you know, as little impact as possible and anything industrial or kind of um, modern scale is, is, uh, is inherently harmful. And, and therefore, you know, you get some people with an incredible deep knowledge and skill base of like how to live as, as hunter gatherers, which is incredible. Um, Mm. And, you know, I'm certainly still apprenticing to a lot of those skills myself. um, And I have a great, respect for those who who have studied those skills in a deeper way but it it certainly felt important to stephanie and i to really attend to this relationship with what we cultivate as well you know because Mm -hmm. um yeah first of all you know the way our society is living right now is mainly from agriculture you know that's the only means by which human culture expanded to these to this kind of scale mm-hmm. so um and of course most agricultural practices you know in use today that all of us benefit from are incredibly harmful to the land uh mm-hmm. you know not to mention our bodies with the kinds of pesticides and chemicals that are in use but really for us it's a question of relationship you know if if day to day uh me our staff these kids can um simply be in deeper relationship with yeah the wild the forest the wild animals the you know their tracks the birds the weather all of these things that kind of speak to our deep ancestry um but also to the fields and that actually the necessity that yeah we do need cleared land we do need um you know manipulated irrigation we do need um you know, seeds and, and farming practices. And like, we rely on that completely as a global culture mm-hmm. and in our communities, of course. Um, so how can we attend to that relationship as well? Um, because, 
because we have to attend, you know, like farming practices, of course, are doing a huge amount of damage. I'm, um, I'm reminded, uh, if I could jump in, I'm, I'm reminded yeah. of uh, Stephen Martin. He wrote a book I'm reading called The Sacred, Sacred Gardening. Are you familiar with his work? He's out in Ontario. Okay. Because um, he, he really makes this point. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying about industrial agriculture, there's, you know, no argument can be made <laughs> in favor of the ecological benefits of industrial agriculture. Um, but then he's, he's making this point, like you're saying, that all agriculture can sometimes get wrapped up in that same mm-hmm. uh, judgment. Yeah. And he's saying, no, this is not true at all. Like, like you're saying, it's about relationship, uh, about relationship with the plants, relationship with the soil, listening to the plants. A lot of the same things that we tend to yeah, associate with hunting, gathering, and, you know, being in tune with the forest is, you know, one can be in tune with the field as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, the growth. Um, I also read an article recently about the agricultural revolution basically making this point that there was no agricultural revolution as we think of it and scholars and researchers have known this for quite a while but it hasn't really come out like there's the idea that we all used to be hunters and gatherers and then at some point over you know 500 years thousand years or however long it was there was this transition and just you know this is but it wasn't that way at all you've got all kinds of groups doing both I mean, on this continent, Turtle Island, like the Huron, the Haudenosaunee, um, the Diné, they're all cultivating food yeah. historically, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and many others. And of course, you go further south, there's even more cultivation going on in South America. Mm-hmm. So, and, and also hunting and gathering. It was never, and people would go back and forth according to the needs of the time and the terrain right. and you know this this stark divide between the two of them is is not a historical reality mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that really resonates that really resonates with me it's never it's never as cut and dry as as the popular understanding you know mm-hmm. would have it <laughs> yeah it's incredibly nuanced and and as you say it's about relationship you know i've i've received a lot of teachings actually mainly through through stephanie and her teacher martin you know about the martin Pritchell? Martin Pratel, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've heard some interviews with him. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he teaches a lot about world history from the spiritual perspective, at least in his tradition. And, um, yeah, really the evolution um, of, of, uh, of our relationship to the natural world, you know, of which agricultural practices are one part, you know, but mm. our relationship to the land and the holy in the land, you know, the the divine in the land is uh, is an incredibly multifaceted and, and complex uh, relationship, and, and throughout history, there have been numerous ways for different peoples to um, uh, yet yeah, to live out that relationship with all of its kind of reciprocity and mutual indebtedness and necessary like ceremony and and and, and of course constant adaptation and evolution of, of practices and. Um, and kind of cultural, um, yeah, cultural ways of, of engaging with that, with that relationship, like literally how we feed ourselves, how we clothe ourselves, how we, how we live out meaning, you know, which, which really life. brings us to story, doesn't it? Absolutely. And exactly. yeah, I want to, I want to ask you now, I'm starting to feel story 
in the conversation here more and more. And I'd really like to ask you how story, what, what, what's the place of story or how does story woven through these kinds of activities and yeah. ways of ways of relating with yeah, well, the other than human world? Yeah. I mean, I guess I can start off kind of like structurally. Uh, structurally, our mornings uh, involve a circle, an opening circle, where the kids uh, get to kind of share some gratitude. All of us share a little gratitude, something we're feeling grateful for, kind of open the day with that. And we'll have a big game, uh, and then we'll have a snack and a story. So, mm. you know, kids need regular snacks. <laughs> and it's a great opportunity um, to to kind of have them sitting on the ground and, and have their attention, you know, attuned to a story. So we get this beautiful time each morning where for 20 minutes, the kids have a routine of just sitting down and eating their snack and just hearing a story from one of our staff, you know? Mm. Uh, so our aim with telling those stories is first of all, it's really important for us that this is an oral telling, you know, we really encourage our staff to learn and tell a story rather than use a book. Mm. Um, because there's certain parameters uh, within which the oral tradition like just comes alive. You know, the magic comes alive when a story is told rather than read. And what we're aiming to do with that story is sometimes to prime the kid's attention. You know, like if we are getting into the fall and mushrooms are popping up, you know, there's so many stories about mushrooms. Um, and maybe they're traditional stories, you know, from, from different traditions. And it's always important to us to know what tradition they come from and acknowledge the tradition and um yeah ensure as much as possible that there's permission to share the story hmm. but also we share a lot of stories from our lives you know and our sort of our basic aim is to just prime the kids attention so that if they hear a story about a yellow mushroom you know and they go for a walk in the woods and they see a yellow mushroom you know it's like suddenly like the synapses fire and there's a million different connections that we couldn't even design you know hmm. So we, we don't we don't front load this with the kids like we're studying mushrooms now. So we're going to tell a story about mushrooms. And, mm. you know, it's not that at all. It's just mm. telling a story and letting the story live through the kids mm. experience then, mm. you know. And sometimes we do, you know, you f sometimes we have the perfect story for, oh, we're harvesting grapes today on the farm. I remember I found a beautiful Italian story about grapes, magic grapes, of course. You know? mm. So that was a really cool day. Um, but other times we'll be telling a story that's kind of like seasonally appropriate, you know, as, as we follow this medicine wheel around the year, it's very much about archetypal energies, you know? So if, if we tell a story that feels to carry the energy of fall or wherever we are on the medicine wheel, then, you know, our, our belief and actually what we've seen is the way that story can unfold through the day can have a kind of magic to it. You know, something from the story shows up on the land or in the kid's experience and, and and there's there's this uh, there are these connections that are made that again are so far beyond what we could design. You know, I, I remember at the beginning of our first year of programming, I told this story that I know from the Amazon about a time when the world burned down. You know, and these two individuals uh, they survived because they were away in the other world, and they came back and they found a world that was completely burned down to the ground, and uh, they had to revive the world. You know, by by finding kicking around in the in the in the duff and the soot and all the charred logs until they found a drum and they had to drum and sing the world back to life basically mm. and weeks later <laughs> uh 
we're kind of in a in an area where we have our programming where you know in Cumberland where this program is it's an old mining town so there's a big like slag heap of old kind of like bits of coal and stuff and there's like charred kind of fragments of wood and coal up there and this little girl she this was weeks after the story she was staring at this like piece of black coal or something in her hand like she went Cass is this from the story and I'm thinking like yeah, this is like weeks later. So I'm thinking, hmm, the story this morning, story last week. And I'm like, what story? And she was like, you know, the story you told us when the world burned down. Mm. And I was like, wow, okay, it can't choose story. Like, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe something mm. happened here. You know, like the impact on a child's psyche of having these big stories mm. to then relate to, I think is huge. And, and, and it's missing in the culture today because, well, for so many reasons, but what it can provide is, yeah, just a way into relating in a different way. So it really strikes me. I mean, that's such a powerful point. And uh, it really strikes me thinking about stories and myth. You know, there's this critique kind of level that well, they're not true. You know, look at the archaeology, you know, look at the DNA. We've got the facts, right? But it's not about that in fact i mean some of them have that kind of truth as well in them um historical truth but yeah looking at that slag heap and you know is is this the destruction of the world like yes this is we're looking at that same energy of world destroying energy here right yeah and then what that story has provided that little girl at the same time as considering the immensity of that like reality really because yeah kids are getting all these narratives you know about mm -hmm. the end of the world because it's what's happening sure yeah and she has a story that actually provides the way forward you know sing and drum the world back to life you know yeah. after kicking around in the in the devastation you know i mean mm -hmm. that's not something i would ever like interpret for her but the fact that right. the story is there it's it, it's providing something else. It's providing more. You know, it's providing possibility, which I love about mm -hmm. these stories. And as you say, like a lot of any 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 kind of like intact mythological tradition, it doesn't really. It's not really concerned with explaining things, which I think is why it's difficult from Western perspectives to like mm -hmm. admit validity to a lot of these other traditions, mm -hmm. but what all of those traditions do is have a whole body of stories that teach us to relate. You know, we're not supposed to understand everything in this world, but we're supposed to relate to everything, mm -hmm. you know? So myths teaches us to relate, you know? That's, and that's it. And like you say, it lives, it lives with you. Mm -hmm. And it seems like this is one of the differences also between written tradition and oral tradition. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in India, as very involved in, uh, tradition of bhakti yoga and it's oral and written mm. there's not really permission given to take the stories and run with them mm. it's like this is the authenticity this is what this is this is the correct way of understanding it there's validity to that but i've also mm. come to appreciate you know you give that story to the little girl and it's like it's it's with her it it may act on her in a different way than it did on you, mm -hmm. you know. And and if she tells it again, it it, it goes on 
in 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 different ways it's like a person they can't be controlled you know and it, it, they're going to yeah. change over time mm-hmm. depending on who they're with you know <laughs> exactly yeah yeah and i've i've like i've reflected on this a lot you know being in in this area of the amazon where i've spent a lot of time i've heard different people tell the same story you know mm-hmm. of this of course in different ways with their own personal flavor or their own personal understanding and and it yeah, it's 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 become really clear to me like like that is the life of the story, you know? That's it. It's not about that, which is the real story. It's like exactly. that's not really the right question. It's about that it's telling is alive and uh-huh. and then there's some kind of deep process whereby, you know, the 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 kind of collective psyche of a culture over hundreds of years sort of sifts out maybe what's unnecessary or basically the core elements of the story that are really important, they remain there, you know, however many different variations there are. And that's why these stories have survived for Mm -hmm. thousands of years, because they are meaningful, simple as that. They carry great meaning, living meaning, complex living meaning. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. This is, this is a really interesting point, this living meaning of the stories that, you know these these stories that are from other parts of the world that are from times before we had the technology we have now before you know we knew about far flung corners of the world to some extent like we do now and yet the stories can hold this mythological psychological internal uh and external meaning mm-hmm. in these times it's mm-hmm. remarkable, isn't it? I mean, exactly. it speaks to yeah. what stays the same as well, mm-hmm. the kind of uh, underpinning of, of who we are and who and what the world is, mm-hmm. you know, those potential relationships mm-hmm. and the powers of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I've been thinking, I just mentioned about psychology and mythology, and it's still, this still, these are still nascent thoughts, but it strikes me that in Western psychology, there's a tendency to make everything internal. You know, all the all the demons, all the angels, all the, you know, everything is like it's all aspects of myself. Mm-hmm. And I think there's validity to that as as a, as a pair of glasses to put on, so to speak, mm-hmm. as a as a view. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gives no agency to the world. Mm-hmm. It gives no agency to anything other than humans. Right. You know, yeah. it's like we're the only ones making meaning of things right uh and otherwise there's no meaning it's just the humans we make meaning and otherwise like random stuff we just happen to have this way that we've got to make meaning of stories of everything but otherwise it's just a bunch of random stuff you know chaos it's like it gives no agency to anybody but humans whereas in the myth there's an externalization of these forces like that is another being it's not an ass of course there's some part of me that's kind of like that but it also has you know that he has its own, his own standing, mm-hmm. his own agency. He's mm-hmm. not dependent just on, you know, me and my psychology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that reflects, you know, when you put it like that, I think, oh, wow, this Western perspective is, I think, okay, if, if it all is internal, that lends a certain sense of safety where like, oh, it's okay. You know, it's, we just need to deal with this and then, you know, personally mm, and individually, right. like if I can handle my demons, then uh, there's a sense of safety in that, right? Mm-hmm. But there's also a, a sense of isolation, you know, loneliness from, from the wild agency of, of 
of like yeah existence and and it's it's multi um yeah it's it's you know being in relationship you know to others with agency and what i mean i know a little about the indian tradition of my um my grandfather's family are from burma myanmar and mm. uh, i know that in his line there was some some northern indian his his mother was from northern india so I, I feel a connection to that part of the world and to that mythology and it's it's more recent that i've started uh, learning a little about it because my partner has been a, a part of uh, a hindu lineage for quite a few years um and yeah i love that in the the indian stories you know often there is this there's can be an explicit understanding that like the, these are internal demons for instance but at no point is it suggested that they are only internal demons. yeah that's right like that's a demon right. might have the name the translation might be ignorance or something like this you know yeah uh, which 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 kind of treads that line of like oh ignorance is something i can battle in myself or you know um be in a tussle with but also yeah mm -hmm. ignorance in the world and it's just this beautiful like you have to let go you really have to let that's go. it isn't it yeah that's it that's it just, <laughs> trying to like, pin everything down yeah and just like <laughs> be, yeah like be, be allow yourself to be overwhelmed by the multitudinous intelligences and the diversity and the beauty the sheer beauty of of like wow just how many points of view or how many forces uh mm -hmm. there are in this life that that we are a part of you know and doesn't that feel like a homecoming in a sense because if i'm thinking of human history as far as i understand human history which is just one view of human history although i try to inform myself from different perspectives um, but if i'm thinking of human history the whole kind of like one god one currency you know we're we're together in the same nation uh one language this i mean it's kind of a colonial this you know, it's unifying in one sense, but it's homogenizing. There's a lot of, you know, diversity that's that's not allowed. And I'm thinking yeah. on this continent, uh, you know, there's tribes living right next to each other who believe in different gods and different creation stories and many different things, but they're not like, we got to battle it out to see whose God is right. You know, that's mm -hmm. going to be determined by firepower, like which mm -hmm. God's the real one. Yeah. There's not that conception as far as I've ever heard. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's, yeah. it's, there's a coexistence of views that seem to really contradict each other. Yeah. And that's like, that's okay. And in India also, I mean, there's very, there's Absolutely. many, many different views coexisting and there's conflict sometimes between them as mm -hmm. well. Um, but overall, it's it's there's a kind of allowance of yeah. these very different ways of looking at the world, totally. and I think that's the standard throughout human history. If I use the word standard, but yeah. I think that's more common in human history is that plurality of different views mm -hmm. than this attempt to you know you're under one law, yeah, one language, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, tied to the point you were making earlier about. Um, the oral tradition versus the literal tradition, you know, literature, mm -hmm. writing things down, um, you know, the notion of literal comes from literature, you know, like mm -hmm. needing to understand what is literal, what is real, what is the one way mm -hmm. is tied to that. Thing to that literature, to the written word. Literature. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, those, those, those three religions of the book, uh, I have to say, <laughs> I've been responsible for a whole lot of, uh, 
empire and domination and proselytization and yeah you know forced conversion to the one way of as it's written in the book god as it's written in the book and that is that's oh that's a scary thing it's quite a point isn't it because of course i mean i'm in many ways extremely glad for the written word and the books and these points of view I can hear from books, uh, you know, the capacity to be able to write things down and codify things and organize things and all this kind of stuff is wonderful. Um, and yet there is that danger, isn't it? That once it's written down, it's not changing around anymore. I mean, of course, it could be another version of the book, but uh, compared to an oral teaching or an oral story, that. The oral story, it's its alive, it's moving, it can shift according to circumstances. Yeah. Whereas once it's written down, it's written down 2,000 years ago, very different circumstances yeah. or more, you know, however long, many hundreds of years ago. But yeah. it's like, we've got to, we've got to apply it today yeah. just like that. Yeah. And I think there's some traditions where there's, there's some like, there's some leeway with that. For instance, I know about mm-hmm. a little about the Hebrew tradition, you know, the Torah, you know, the holy book of the, of the Hebrew tradition is um, the way the the Hebrew language works is there's no vowels, you know, written down, the ancient Hebrew Mm. language, which requires for um, a person who's reading it um, to put their own vowels in there. And this is about invoking the breath of life because the vowels are breath. In Mm. Hebrew, they say ruach, which which means wind, and wind is the breath of God. And so putting our breath in there gives life to these words. But, of course, depending what vowel sounds you put in there, it can change the meaning of the word. So there's such a deep Mm. tradition of interpretation in the Torah, which is why when people study the ancient Hebraic texts, you need a very experienced rabbi you know you need elders to kind of help you understand that these sacred teachings which have been written down carry a great amount of nuance and room for interpretation and that actually is their life which comes from our breath which is the breath of god and so interpretation is essential and a diversity to how these teachings can be applied although Hmm. they're written down is contained within the tradition and i i don't know too much about like the vedic texts for instance but i but because that is such an alive oral tradition as well as a written tradition, mm-hmm. you know, I'm just curious about, okay, how does that, how does that work together? Because certainly with, uh, yeah, with, with the Quran or, or with, you know, the Bible, especially the new Testament, it seems like that room for interpretation and a diversity of views and how the word is applied seems just far more fraught, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, I guess there's the idea that there's one true God and that there's one true way of interpreting scripture. And of course, people will interpret scripture differently. uh, But the idea that they have is that there's one right way to do it. Uh, So, you know, whoever is not interpreting it that way is necessarily wrong. Whereas, yeah, another, another way of looking at it would be, okay, there's different ways of interpreting it. There's different ways of living with it, uh, and that's okay. You know that there's a kind of room for that. And I think uh, you know I, I listened to quite a few interviews and discussions from Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan friar, and he he sees it that way. I mean, he's coming in that Christian tradition. I think a lot of hardline Christians would find would find him heretical. Uh, because he is willing to depart from what it says in the Bible, and or yeah. willing to, you know, that was from that time. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and he emphasizes what he calls the living scripture, which is your life, mm-hmm. more than the Bible. Like if, mm-hmm. if, if the textual story, the textual teachings don't match up with your lived experience, then rather than disassociating yourself and trying to pretend that that's the truth and that your lived experience doesn't have validity, mm. it's better to get some distance from the textual teachings mm. or from how they've been presented to you, your interpretation mm. of them, mm-hmm. and favor your own lived experience. Right. Um, yeah. Otherwise, you end up losing trust in yourself and in your yeah. own life, you know, your yeah, heart. Absolutely. That sounds like really sound advice. The other thing that I that I like reflect on is that like the layers of information that these old stories contain are the layers of guidance or like yeah the the layers of relationship contained in these stories are are kind of endless, you know? Like so trying to you know, trying to apply like one story as a kind of doctrinal teaching about the way we should all be to me mm-hmm. just it undermines the the complexity and richness of myth and story you know i mean it's which is why i love these traditions where there is like such an engagement of our interpretation and diversity i you know it's funny i know there is at least one story in the bible in the old testament the tower tower of babel that um speaks to this danger of homogenizing you know getting all the people in the world to true to, yeah to one language and it, it, it you know going wrong basically so you know i feel like wow these ancient stories like in the bible in the quran you know like they they are ancient stories and i know especially with the you know with the the christian bible there was a lot of manipulation of the stories that happened particularly in the early ages of christianity where where stories were kind of adapted to endorse um, a centralized state mm-hmm. and a kind of patriarchal right. um, state. But nevertheless, you know, lots of the stories in there do contain like all this rich cultural information. And <clears throat> I would say um, we haven't really scratched the surface of, of their intelligence, you know, certainly not if, if um, the main way they're applied as kind of, doctrines of of conduct yeah Mm -hmm. yeah i i know i listened to some of these lectures from jordan peterson some time ago as well that he did psychological significance of the bible lectures Mm -hmm. and um i mean from from my point of view i i felt maybe because of the crowd he was talking to he was maybe a bit too hesitant to you know get theological about it Mm -hmm to mm-hmm. to really speak about it spiritually but that was the context of his lectures is the psychological psychological significance of the bible and the and the historical significance for western culture how you know whether you like it or not then these do inform western culture mm-hmm. and to understand the current situation of western culture it is important to uh to understand that as well Mm-hmm. And they were very popular, and I think part of that is that there's a hunger for looking at these stories that that mean so much to so many people, mm-hmm. even those that weren't 
born and grew up in a Christian context per se, uh, you know, many of us are still very affected by these stories. They're kind of built into the framework of society, the treatment of women, Adam and Eve, many different things. Uh, a lot of law uh, is connected with these old stories. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a hunger to, to look at them, not just in a very prescriptive way, but to, to look at them, I guess, with the freedom that you don't have to take it in a particular way. Mm-hmm. And I can speak for myself also with the bhakti tradition uh, and with Christianity, that having that freedom now to not need to accept everything in a particular way is really opening things up for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like suddenly, you know, I don't want to get super whimsical of all kinds of contorted interpretations and things like this, but it's like, okay, I can have a relationship with these stories that's not just a relationship with a master that cannot be questioned. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's some dialogue that's possible there. Like I can bring in my questions, my lived experience, and I can mm-hmm. accept accept things and other things. I don't know. Just like with a friend. I mean, I may not accept everything about a friend, but it doesn't mean that they're not my friend. Mm-hmm. Like I, I may not want to take it all on board. I could kind of accept that that's who they are, but it doesn't mean I, I'd want to take those views on myself necessarily. Mm-hmm. So it feels like, you know, that kind of relationship with Scripture, uh, not needing to take it interpreted in a certain way is very freeing. Right. And with, with the written stories as well. And I mean, I might even venture to say that it brings them somewhat into the territory of oral tradition because there's mm-hmm. that, they regain some of that flexibility. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I want to open up another. Oh, uh, please go ahead, and then I have another somewhat of a direction. It's like, it's like giving giving agency back to the story, you know, like yeah, and never, to oneself. Yeah. Yeah, we could never have a complete understanding of the story mm-hmm. and it, it, its intentions, its life, its destiny. It, you know. Yeah. It's Just like we life. can't understand another person fully. Right. You know, I can't say, yeah. "Well, I've you know, I've known you for twenty years, like." There are no surprises left, right? Like I, I know everything. It's hopefully not, right? Hopefully yeah. there's still growth and possibility and yeah, surprise there, isn't there? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, with the stories as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was in a class the other day uh, with Tyson Yunkapora. Oh yeah, you know him? Yeah, he's uh, for those of you who don't know, he's a uh, he's an Aboriginal man from Australia. And he's a scholar, he's a systems thinker, he's a carver. Uh, he's got a great book called Sand Talk, which is, yeah, it's, it's, it's a view of modern culture, largely a view of modern culture from an indigenous perspective, rather than a view of indigenous culture from the view of scholarly modern uh, culture. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he's, he's great. Uh, he's quite deep and wise, and, and, but also very shoots from the hip and like yeah. jokes around. And uh, yeah, right. it's really good. And he was talking about this, now I'm paraphrasing, but like a, a web of stories throughout landscape. So like in Australia, uh, it's been translated as song lines or storylines uh, that 
there each these different places have stories associated with them. Uh, you know, connected with the moon, connected with women, connected with men, connected with animals, connected with the sun. These different stories have places. Uh, places have stories associated with them, and those stories are woven together. And often, it won't be when you go to a place. It's not necessarily that there's this whole epic that's specifically rooted in that place. It's more like there's a piece of the story there. And there's another piece of the story somewhere else, and the thing it's like a web of nonlinear stories. And um, actually, I can speak also from experience going on pilgrimage in India, especially in Vrindavan and in in Bengal, in Mayapur and uh, Navadvip. It's like that as well. You know, we'd go to these different places and hear something that happened there with Krishna's associates, and we go to another place and hear another thing. Like, this is where he played, and this is the game. And then this is uh, where he danced. This is where they swam in the river. And different different parts, you know? And this is where he was born. That's very significant. Yeah. You know? And uh, this is where he fought this demon. Yeah. And defeated this demon. So they kind of weave together into this whole. There's these different forests and these different pastimes called leelas that weave mm-hmm. together. And I was asking him in this class, uh, and he was he was describing this like, what about restoring the landscape? And so one thing he said is that, uh, you know, like in Australia, there's a lot of mining, so it happens sometimes that a sacred site is destroyed, uh, and the story he he says has to change. It has to accommodate what's happened to that place. Um, and a resilient story can reweave. It struck me something like an ecosystem. You know, an ecosystem takes hits and then reweaves. And of course, there's a limit to what an ecosystem could take. And I, I suppose it's just like that with stories as well. Um, but I was asking him about reweaving stories, and especially, you know, for those of us, and he really said, really, most people in the world are in some kind of diaspora now. He said, even in Australia, like, Native Australian people are mostly not living in the part of Australia that they were born. Yeah. So it's like most people are in diaspora. <laughs> yeah. So it's for those of us who are in diaspora, who are living in a place that our ancestors didn't, you know, what's, what's, what's our storied relationship with the land? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, of course, will involve connecting with the people of that place. And yet we bring our own stories and stories develop over time. Uh, A land will acquire stories, both mythological stories and also more like recent history stories that places have significance or places that have significance in one's own life. I'm sure a lot of the places that you go with the children in your school, like they must build up significance for you and for them, I would imagine, right? Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, this is a pretty broad question, but I just wanted to put it out there to you. Mm-hmm. If you want to share some thoughts about what I would call the restoring of landscape or the, the continued storying of landscape, yeah. weaving those threads. Yeah, I mean, my first kind of thought is that it's absolutely essential to, to restore our landscapes. Um, and 
And yeah, that the story and not in a dogmatic way of, well, this was the old story and this, that's the way it is, even though the mountain's gone because, you know, they're drilling for oil or whatever. Um, yeah, like, and I, I, my sense is that, yeah, that's just, that's how story, you know, emerged in the beginning is like a people's deep connection to a place, you know, and witnessing of certain events, you know, sort of, mm. um, yeah, detailed it as this living story. Um, now almost like a dream of the culture, uh, you know, explaining this, yeah, or presenting this complex life of a place. So I think, uh, I think that process, um, happens naturally and um for those of us who like engage with story um yeah maybe that's part of our work to to uh to restory um you know the modern landscape in a way that that feels um alive i guess and i think that even just that as a as a project feels like it it could create all these amazing opportunities for intercultural connection and intercultural healing and, um, yeah, connection, reconnection to the land and, and lots of things. But yeah, I mean, the, the other thing is like the land has a story. Maybe it's just about listening. You know, the mm. land has a story. The land suffers that, that um injustice when the when the mountain is 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 blown off to put a well there or whatever you know mm -hmm. and so uh yeah maybe it's just about listening i sort i sort of have this like maybe naive notion that just yeah the way these stories emerged over generations like so they so they will continue to emerge even though it seems like we're in this strange modern pause or this like horrifying uh -huh. silence where the stories in in the general culture have, have, have almost like lost all their depth and everything is a surface level kind of like Hollywood mm. story or, or polarizing political narrative story or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but humans need stories. It's yeah. That, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I just, I have this sense that as we, I don't know, as, as our, as our landscapes change, you know, well, right now the stories are there. The stories are like, Oh, well, we need all this timber for our economy to survive. And that is a, that's a poor story, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's it's not, like a junk food story, but it is a story, story. you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so I just, yeah, I, I have this, uh, I have this deep kind of sense that story is the true, is the real current, of life and like whatever strange eddy we're in right now, you know, where the stories are not fed. Um, I don't know, will there be a storm surge at some point or will, the, you know, some kind of dam break? And then, I mean, if we lose the internet and media, you mm. know, and, and stuff like that, like our stories, I, th I think would shift, would shift quickly back to, to the land and the locality. Mm. Um, you know, imagine if we lost entertainment, like, oh my goodness, we would right. have to return to, to the source, you know? Um, 
So yeah, I, kind of in response to your question, it's a, it's a really stimulating question. Thank you for that. But I just, I feel all of this aliveness there of like, yeah, we like, that has to happen one way or another, and it will. And I want uh -huh. to participate in that. Process. I want to participate in it too. Yeah, I mean, you know. Tyson Junkapur, he says, you know, this is, it's not something you can just sit down and do in, right. you know, a year, like writing a book or something like that. Yeah, it's something exactly. you can be part of. It takes generations to happen. Yeah. Um, and yet it's something we can work toward, mm. you know, it's like it takes mm -hmm. time to regrow an old growth forest more than a human life, lifetime, but yeah. humans can help in that process. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's something like that. We have, we have some uh, co-creative ability mm -hmm. in, in this regard. And then, yeah, it's like there's, there's going to be stories, but they might be crap stories, <laughs> you know, like, like, a, who was his name? Rune. Uh, he's, he talks a lot about Norse mythology oh, yeah. and history. He's Rune got a, Charno, I think. Yeah. So he talked about conspiracy theories and how, yeah. You know, apart from some conspiracy theories may be true, that's not the point. But just to be super involved in all the complexities and intricacies of various conspiracy theories is a supplement for living in, with mythology. Mm -hmm. And it's just, and just whatever the stories are, whether it's capitalism or a particular conspiracy theory or, you know, a religion, it's like, what's the effect of it? Like, is it helping? Like with food. You know, I might, I might be thinking, well, is this food healthy for me or not? Well, how do I feel? Like, how is it affecting my health? Mm -hmm. Can check. And with stories that we're living in, because whether, you know, we are still living in stories. Mm -hmm. It's just that we think we're not. Like, the whole scientific paradigm is totally a story in a worldview, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but to admit it, is important, I think. And it, it's one of the kind of things about modern cultures, like we don't really admit it a lot of times. So no, no, we're really rational now. Yeah. <laughs> well, then, it, it, you, you know, try to close it down. Huh? Yeah. Like we've made it now. We, you know, yeah, we've made, yeah, we've made it out of superstition yeah. into rationality. But it's that's really just one part of our capacity and it's just one part of our need. Mm -hmm. is the rational mm -hmm. of course that's important you know rationality mm -hmm. and objectivity supposed objectivity as much as we can muster mm -hmm. but there's a whole there's the rest of us there mm -hmm. there's 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 the rest of the pie it's just a little slice and it's going to come out somehow or another mm -hmm. it, with the conspiracy theories or the you know polarized political narratives or whatever mm -hmm. so then it seems you know just like uh farmers you know, our good organic farmers are important to bring healthy food into the marketplace. It seems like storytellers, those who work with stories, we have a responsibility to bring good story. Mm. You know, there's mm -hmm. a, it's like if somebody switches over to healthy food, after a while, they might not really want the, the crap anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a cool notion. Yeah, I like that, you know. Yeah, because I, I I really admire and and um, yeah, sort of long for the yeah the, those times or those cultures when the storyteller was such a cherished member of the society, you know. Mm. And it, of course, that still exists today uh, in with our 
you know, film directors um, or journalists or like, you know, it, it's become a kind of uh, these various disparate roles. Um, mm. But, you know, the one who carried stories and told stories, you know, particularly there would be old stories, right? There would be origin stories. They would carry news mm -hmm. from village to village as well. I'm sort of thinking about the Shanaki of the Irish tradition. At least that's mm. a large part of my ancestry. And, and kind of that's the lineage I call on for kind of my storytelling. Um, but yeah, wow, this, this amazing responsibility and kind of a sacrifice, you know, to be the, the one who carries the stories because at least in that tradition, these were wanderers, you know. They wandered the land from, from village to village. Mm. And, and when they came into a village, everyone knew about it and everyone was there around the the fire that night, um, you know, crammed into a little stone cottage or whatever to hear not just what they had to say about the fishing down the coast, but like, oh, tell us that story again of, of, you know, the fight between the, the Tour de Don and, and the giants, you know, or, you mm. know just that relationship between the origins of a culture and what happens day to day and then what's going to happen in the future and that whole like integrity of the culture mm -hmm. is woven by stories and then how people orient in their lives of course you know like that was that was what the storytellers were were sort of like stewarding for the culture you know like a landscape of stories you know and the mm -hmm. landscape itself through those stories it's just such an incredible part of, of our our heritage, you know, like the mm. come from these storied traditions. It's, it's amazing. These storied places. It's quite something. And the open question on my mind, and maybe others, maybe yourself, is something like, what now in this time when these many old cultures are mixing like never before? Of course, they've always mixed, but not to this extent, people traveling all over the world and drawing from different traditions. What are the stories that we, what are the healthy life affirming stories that we can help emerge, that we can help to emerge? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a big question. Um, and also I would be, I would be hesitant to, to be too strategic with that mm. intention, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because also like, I mean, I think back to the, you know, the origin myths of traditions that I draw on and I could look at some of those stories and think like, whoa, that is not a life-giving story, <laughs> you know, mm. but it's a story about the dark side of life or humanity or, or, you know, and I think maybe the stories of our time, maybe they'll become those cautionary tales, maybe, uh -huh. you know, um, I mean, cautionary tale sort of diminishes like the, the, the complexity of them, but. Well, like a but, tale yeah. that acknowledges the acknowledges underside, the darkness, the, grief, the devastation, yeah, the grief. you know, the, the, the horror as we realize what we're doing and what we've done as a culture, mm -hmm. you know, like, I feel like we are in that, in that process, you know, of just being able to really look at, our, not just our traje trajectory, you know, but like the history and like be in this moment of, of devastation, you know, like when, when we can get to that moment, I think culturally, then there's a chance for a, a revival and a new direction. 
you know, but it's, we've got to mm. allow ourselves to, to, to feel that first, I think. And then the stories about that devastation, you know, replete with the horror and the pain and the violence, um, are kind of like, yeah, well, that's, I think they'll be very important for the future, but it's also just, it's mm-hmm. justice to tell those stories of the times and from the perspective of the land, just what mm. has been going on, certainly on this continent for, you know, the last couple hundred years, those stories are going to be vital. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, to, to sit with that, to face that, to digest that. Mm. Yeah. Is there a story you feel called to tell, Kes? Um well, I had a sense you might you might ask me that and <laughs> I do I have, there's this one story that I've that I've been uh uh hanging on to for a few months. Um and it's very short, which is kind of part of um, what I like about it, because there are stories I would love to tell, but they would take quite a long time. Um, but I heard this little story um, from a storyteller called Judith Lieberman, who um, I believe she's French, but she lives in Turkey. And, and she, yeah, she's been part of an amazing revival of, of the traditional Turkish storytelling tradition. And she told this story um, as part of some kind of online event that I was a part of. Um, back during during the lockdown. And the story tells that somewhere, somewhere in the world, uh, and whatever tradition or culture or place we're kind of speaking from, maybe, maybe that somewhere is a part of that world. Um, but the story says that somewhere in the world, if you walk to the very, 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 very edge of the land, passing through the towns and the cities and the busyness, uh, maybe out through the fields and the farmland and maybe through the forests and maybe beyond that, the deserts and out into the, the drier areas and finally the windblown bluffs of the edge of the land where the ocean meets our realm. Somewhere out there along that windblown coast, there is, there's a rock and there's a rock that sits half in the tide and half out of the tide and it's at the bottom of a high bluff and and they say that it's a place that's hard to get to and it's a place that hard that's hard to find but if you get there you'll see a man and that man is sitting on this rock that's half in the tide and half on the shore and he's telling stories and he's telling stories to the ocean and he's telling and telling and telling and telling and if you listen you might imagine that it's many different stories and if you listen for longer you might imagine that it's one incredibly long multifaceted diverse story but if you listen long enough you'll realize this man never stops he tells stories day and night and day and night and he's telling stories to the ocean and they say that you can't interrupt him and people have at times and he'll stop if someone asks to engage with them. Maybe they'd ask for a story, but if you ask him this one question, old man, why are you sitting here telling stories to the ocean? 
the reply he gives apparently to those who ask is, well, I don't know what'll happen if I stop. And he goes back to telling his story to the vastness of the blue ocean. And we go back through the dry lands and the green lands and back to the towns and cities of our daily lives. And we, we live out that, that knowing, that trust that the old man is still there and he's still telling stories, our stories and his stories to the ocean. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Let's finish there. Beautiful so to have cool. you on the show. Yeah. And yeah, I'd love to do I'd love to do this again. Mm-hmm. Likewise, thank you. It was really a pleasure. It's so great to connect and yeah, give life to these stories. Thanks for listening to Story Paths, where we finger threads weaving story with culture. Before we go, I'd like to remind you of my new course, Creative Writing, Brainstorming Story Ideas, that is now available on Skillshare. If you're looking for a playful, creative space, this may just be for you. You can find the trailer and a link for a free month of Skillshare in the show notes. And as we part, I send my best wishes for you and yours. In the words of the Irish poet John O'Donoghue, may you realize that the shape of your soul is unique, that you have a special destiny here, and behind the facade of your life, there is something beautiful and eternal happening. And so we close.